friends, this is our last episode of 2017, and boy, has this year been a doozy. I can't promise that we're not going to curse because we are so effing excited to have 2017 be almost so over. So for bringing excited. So bring it, 2018. This has been your obscenity warning. Hello, J. Crew. This is Mark Oppenheimer. Happy almost Gentile New Year. We're all away on a beach somewhere, either literally or on the great sandy beach of our minds. But we have a new episode for you recorded a couple weeks ago. It's our long planned advice episode for you to listen to on whatever beach you may currently occupy. You may remember a couple months ago, we put out the call for questions. We said, write to us. You guys are always asking for advice anyway. So... Here we are. We put out the call for questions. You sent them in. And for today's episode, we've selected some of the best letters, thought deeply about them, researched them, and come up with some answers for you. Our first question, it comes from Upper East Side of Manhattan resident Miranda Hilliard. Hello, my number one Jewish podcast friends, Miranda writes. I am a Gentile listener in the Upper East Side, though I am cur- I like how she says in the Upper East Side. So I, th- I would have said on, but she's in it. It's a state actually. of mind. It's a state of mind. <laughs> I am a Gentile listener in the Upper East Side, though I am currently undergoing study for a liberal, no, literally unorthodox, conversion. I was initially introduced to the podcast by Dan Savage, but was reintroduced by the Lexicon Valley crossover episode. Being indoctrinated into your podcast couldn't have come at a better time. I like that she feels that we've indoctrinated her. Couldn't have come at a better time in my path toward Judaism. This brings me to my question. What do you, my panel of expert Jews, consider to be my required Jewish education, reading, movies, etc.? I would love to hear your suggestions. Shalom, friends. Miranda Hilliard. Hey, Miranda. Shira Telushkin, our producer, did have a suggestion for you. She said, read Isaac Besheva Singer's In My Father's Court and read Andre Asaman's Out of Egypt. Both so beautiful, and I think a great way to remember that this wonderful, crazy Jewish world you're joining is vast and encompasses so many different communities worth exploring. And if you haven't gotten thrown into a proper Simcha dancing circle yet, then that is required. I remember my first. You remember your first? Yeah. Your first horror? Your first No, circ- like a real, like a real shtick, like the whole thing. What's the whole thing? Where you sit where the bride and groom sit down and everyone dances around them and wears T-shirts and does dances. It's really, it's wild. T-shirts? Yeah. You've never been? It's like... Apparently, I need this Jewish education as yeah, well. Yeah, you need it. Anyway, Stephanie, what do you got for her? The Book of Ruth is my reading suggestion. It's a story of a convert, Ruth, and her Jewish mother-in-law who can't relate to that. Um, and, I, and spoiler alert, Ruth ends up being the great-grandmother of King David. So, you know... There's hope for all of us yet. And she never even had to go to a bait din. She never had to get grilled by but a bunch of rabbis. It's interesting. You know, she it's, just, just joined along, which is yeah. how conversion should be, I think. I don't know. I just think it's a beautiful story. And the Ruth and Naomi, that bond is really, really beautiful. A conversion should just be basically um, agreeing with your mother-in-law. Agreeing with your mother-in-law <laughs> is making you a Jew. I, I yeah. also want to say All of a Kind Family, which is the Sidney Taylor series of books about a family of girls growing up in on the Lower East Side in like the early 1900s. And it's basically like Jewish little house on a prairie. Beyond the depiction of a Jewish family, it has an amazing depiction of the Lower East Side yeah. in the early 20th century. I mean, it's really, really just wild. And then I would say for viewing... I'd say difficult people. It's the Julie Klausner and Billy Eichner show, and it just reliably and hilariously depicts New York Jews. Um, And I would say start with all the episodes with Jackie Hoffman as Rachel, (laughs) Billy Eichner's brother's wife. And there's an amazing episode where Billy's brother, who's played by Fred Armisen, is supposed to be like serving in the IDF for a short amount of time. But it turns out he's just hiding in the basement because they kicked him out. And so (laughs) Rachel thinks he's a dibbick. It's amazing. It's just like, where is there's a show on TV that's like using the word dibbick casually. It's amazing. Um, So I'd say those are my three very well-rounded suggestions. I'm going to take all those suggestions. I'm going to read all the family and watch difficult people. And yeah, 
Liel. For reading, um, Mark, I know you and I agree on this. Uh, Pirkei Avot, uh, the, the Ethics of the Fathers, which I still think is kind of the, the greatest self-help book uh, ever written. Uh, it is a work of profound... Second century... Mythical... Rabbinic literature. That's yeah. right. Uh, it's basically, you know, it's taken from, from the Mishnah, uh, and it is a, a great guide to thinking about yourself and your place uh, in the world. And then as you, uh, as you watch and read, I think you should also drink obviously, not alcohol, uh, but rather something that I grew up on and, and many other Jews did, although I don't think it is, I tried to research this, but I don't think it is particularly Jewish. I think it's just Polish. Are you familiar with Gogol Mogul? No. No, but I want to be. Yeah. Okay. So Gogol Mogul, every time you would say as a kid, or I would say as a kid, I, I'm feeling a little bit sick. My grandmother would repair to the kitchen and she would prepare this elixir, which is basically uh, warm milk with honey and a raw egg, oh my which God. is the best kind of metaphor for Jewish life. It's or for Jewish family, right? It's it's very comforting. It's just a little bit cloying and too sweet. And there's something in it that's just like so profoundly weird that oughtn't to be in it, but it kind of makes sense and ties the whole thing together anyway. So we make Ellie warm milk and honey when she lies to us and says she can't sleep. But I've never thought of putting an egg in it. There you have it. The egg is to toughen her up. Miranda, if you are a New Yorker, you are already, by the Lenny Bruce way of thinking, Jewish. So I feel like you protested too much. I mean, if you've been on the Upper East Side for any amount of time, if you've been in Upper Manhattan, I I feel like you've figured out a lot of it. So I bet you're farther along than you think. Nevertheless, less. We are here for you. So I have come up with a list of everything that Liel hates. I feel a little bit bad because Liel found common ground with me on, on Pirkei Avot, but I, being a fan of at least early Philip Roth, I think you should go read Goodbye Columbus, which I think gives you a beautiful snapshot of a certain kind of mid-century Judaism. Uh, I think you should even watch the mediocre movie because, again, it, it does the work that it, that it's, that we want it to do for you. I also think you should watch Transparent, which is a show that uh, declined a lot in this last season and which uh, is going through weird tribulations that you can read about in the papers. But the first three seasons in particular show a... An American Jewish family that does things that a lot of American Jewish families do. They're not orthodox, but they're not totally secular. They light Shabbat candles sometimes. They feel guilty that they forget most of the time. They kind of think maybe they should keep kosher, but basically they don't. They have that sort of conflicted but affectionate relationship with Judaism that I think is almost never portrayed on TV, where all Jews are either completely secular, you know, witness, you know, Ross and and Monica on Friends, or they're like super Haredi or ultra orthodox with sidelocks. There's never anything in the middle except on Transparent. And I would go back and read Chaim Potok's book, The Chosen, which uh, don't see this movie, whatever you do. do. You will never get those two hours of your life back from the most cartoonish, ridiculous, uh, Jew face, uh, step and fetch it portrayal of Judaism ever. But the book is great. But the book is terrific. And it, it will teach you a lot about the, the distinctions between liberal orthodoxy or modern right. orthodoxy and and. Haredi ultra orthodoxy. If and you just, love a book that's both about baseball and the differences between Hasidim and Misnagdim, yeah, that is your book. Um, also, you should go eat at the Second Avenue Deli. Also, a, a pro tip. Uh, things don't start on time in Judaism. They don't start an hour late, but they start at least 15 minutes late. I was once at a Catholic wedding. I think I've told this story before where the wedding was called for noon and I showed up at like 12.03 and I had to follow the bride down the aisle. Like they had actually started at noon. That is culturally alien. So don't, when you, when you throw things as a Jew, when you throw events, if you say noon, figure 12.20. There will never be peace with a goyim. Let me explain Jewish and goyish to you. The army is goyish. The navy is goyish. The Marine Corps is Goyish. The Air Force is Jewish. 
Camel cigarettes, very goyish. Salem's Jewish. Kent's goyish. Viceroy's Marlboro's Jewish. Kool-Aid, goyish. Very good. Instant potatoes, scary goyish. So this one comes from Leah Souter, who's been a nice participant in our Facebook group, and I think a think she likes my Instagram sometimes. Um, So dear Unorthodox, I'm a Holocaust studies major and I'm hoping to become a Holocaust historian and work in the Holocaust Museum in DC. Because I'm a student, I meet a lot of new people all the time. And when I tell them my plans for after I graduate, they get all sad, which is, you know, understandable. I did just introduce genocide into the conversation after all, but I don't want them to think I'm a depressing person. How can I tell people my career plans without making them think more about death? I promise I'm a delightful person once you get past the genocide. Yours, Leah Souter. <laughs> uh, this is a big question. I actually asked a colleague of ours, Gabe Sanders, who used to work at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, which is the Holocaust Museum downtown. He points out that it's actually not a Holocaust Museum. <laughs> I was going to say. It's the Museum of Jewish Heritage, colon, a living memorial to the Holocaust. So you do have a little bit more flexibility there. But our heritage being getting murdered. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's other stuff too, but you know, the main, the main thrust. Big part of our heritage. But so here, and he's what he, here's what he said. If, if, if you've made this decision, this is not your biggest concern. Like if you're committing to a, real, a, a, a career, a life of studying the Holocaust, you're getting into a very serious line of work. So I, t- I do understand the question, but I do think there are certain scenarios where you don't want to say like, yeah, I'm a Holocaust historian. You could just say I'm a historian. Mm. You know, a pediatric oncologist at parties probably says I'm a doctor or I'm a pediatrician. Like there are ways in which you can sort of euphemistically refer to what you do correctly. I'm a, I'm a historian at a museum, but I personally think that you should just own it and be like, I'm a Holocaust historian, but I'm super fun. And just like <laughs> throw people off their game and just say like, I, this is what I do, but it's not, it's not depressing all the time. There are really fascinating things I'm, I'm working on. I also think this is a great filter. This weeds out like people who can't handle the fact that you're a Holocaust historian, who don't think there's something interesting about the fact that you've committed to a really interesting line of work. Like th- great. The person who freezes up when you say you're a Holocaust historian, mo- move along. There's someone else at the party. Number three, third question, dear unorthodox Shalom. I'm writing with an arcane question of American Jewish life that I think you'll enjoy and that the J crew is uniquely positioned to answer. Arcane. Cain and Jewish. I mean, yeah, that's that's a- our that's our Venn diagram. Do Jews prefer aluminum foil to plastic baggies? For all my life, our family has used aluminum foil wrapped tightly to store prepared sandwiches, leftover dinner meats, frozen meals, and even pre-cut fruit in my school lunches. This is in stark contrast to the plastic Ziploc baggie or sandwich baggie approach, which is admittedly superior for preventing spills. It wasn't until I went to college at the University of Rochester that it dawned on me. Is this aluminum foil preference a, quote, Jewish thing? One day I conducted an informal poll asking people on my freshman hall, one, how were your lunch sandwiches wrapped as a child? And two, are you Jewish? The answer was one, (laughs) are you stoned? (laughs) The results, overwhelmingly, Jews were more likely to use aluminum foil and Gentiles were fans of plastic baggies, presumably with delicate ham and American cheese sandwiches on white bread with mayo. You know, goyish sandwiches. What do you think? Is this aluminum observation a Northeastern Jewish thing only? Does it relate to kashrut and the perceived sanitary properties of aluminum? Yours, David Stark. Let me just say, before we even begin. Because I I did a lot on this. I know. I I, predict this is going to be... uh, The next mishmash? This is going to be the next mishmash. This is going to be huge. More importantly, David Stark actually was on the subway with our producer, Alyssa Goldstein, last week. And 
spotted her and went over to say hi. David Stark is a he's, super Jew he's of the everywhere. week. David yeah. Starr, we went to work for you. So first I went to Facebook with this one, right? I went to the Facebook group. I just, these are just some of the good answers we got, okay? Len Goldberg said, my mother and grandmother, Len Goldberg not answering the question said, my mother and grandmother has called it chef foil. I have no idea if that's a mid 20th century Brooklyn thing or just my crazy family. Canada Lutz, the best named, the unimprovably named, unimprovably Canada, named Lutz. Canada Lutz, said, so at Jewish day school in Los Angeles, the more religious kids had foil and the more secular ones baggies. It was the clearest defining factor outside of your shul of choice. Our friend and tablet colleague Menachem Butler said plastic bags are easier to use on Shabbat as they don't require tearing, which the aluminum foil had historically required, though now there are pre-cut sheets, but those are more expensive. So Menachem actually gave us a reason that you wouldn't want aluminum foil if you were an observant Jew. Tablet intern Emma Davis said, I grew up with aluminum foil too. My dad, the Jewish side, would save and wash used sheets. It was a whole new world when I left my hippie home and could buy Ziploc bags instead. So that she, is epic. She actually injects the idea, which became yeah. rather prominent in the thread, that Jews like the fact that they were cheap and you could reuse the foil, which is, by the way, I would say I'm not from a particularly cheap family nor a particularly spendthrift one. I think we were pretty averagey about it. It, but we saved some things. It would never occur to me to wash foil. Like you but never it's get so a, durable. Now that I hear it, I'm like, I, of course you can save that's it. That's insane, right? Uh, Morgan Block writes, while my mom, who's in her 50s, is plastic bags through and through, my grandma was all about the foil. In fact, when we moved her into her assisted living and cleaned out her house, we found over a dozen rolls of foil. Needless to say, my younger sister and I have enough foil to last each of us the next 10 years. But we will continue to be Ziploc enthusiasts nonetheless. I feel like there's a scenario in which um, Morgan's having a party and someone's like, oh, let me wrap that in tinfoil. And she's like, that's my grandmother's tinfoil. That's not for using. That's for saving. Betsy Blumenthal wrote, yes, my mom still wraps pills, leftovers, coins for traveling in aluminum foil. My goy boyfriend, her boyfriend, is hopelessly confused. Um, Gabriel Savit Woods said, Michigan here. My parents' household is strictly kosher, leftish, modern, orthodox. And my mother always used aluminum foil wrapping our school lunches. Twist. She's a convert. Bum, so in bum, her bum. case, so, dun, so in her case, it could be learned culture, coincidence, or even something like potentially halachically inflected. Is there kosher related to your preferred foil? Ariane Mandel writes back, hmm, there is a heksher, a kosher approval seal on tinfoil. We're not even getting to the tin versus aluminum foil. Like I, we too called it tinfoil. Was it once made of tin? Must have been. Uh, Shira Telushkin, our uh, producer, daughter of a rabbi and herself a uh, rabbinically learned soul, said, yes, if you're in a house with an oven that hasn't been koshered, you can double wrap anything in tinfoil to bake it and keep it kosher. Though cooking it that way takes much longer. And if you're running a retreat or otherwise plan to use this method for large hungry groups, you need to start cooking almost twice as long in advance. That to me is like the most helpful takeaway from this. Right. I love like, that she goes in with the pro tip. And by the way, if you're running a retreat. At like a place and it's all Jews and it's obviously not a kosher place. Um, Stacy Koenig writes, I wasn't raised Jewishly. My sandwiches were wrapped in waxed paper, oh. which by the way is the Oppenheimer stop. My sandwiches were wrapped by my parents, by Tim and Joanne in wax paper, then aluminum foil. And I have no doubt that this was some sort of fear that plastic baggies had some chemical. This was, right. Ra- this was Ralph Nader inflected. Like plastic baggies were goyish because chemical, because what is plastic? Whereas metal and waxed paper seemed more organic. It was unquestionably a hippie thing for them. Now, look, ultimately our Facebook group didn't settle this. So I had to go to the experts. I went to food writer, Joan Nathan. Tablet's own Joe Nathan, who writes back quite simply, maybe I'm a Gentile. I like plastic wrap except for foods for the freezer. And she adds that she thought it was the other way around. She thought that the Goyim actually liked aluminum foil. So then I wrote to Jenna Weissman-Josselet, historian of Jewish material culture, who writes for Tablet also. 
She didn't know. So she sent me to the University of Delaware professor Susan Strasser, who is the author of Never Done, A History of American Housework and Satisfaction Guaranteed, The Making of an American Mass Market, which has a chapter on the history of packaging. Okay, so, so she's, I, found, I mean, that's the, that's the supreme rabbinic I found packaging. the original packaging expert. She's like the preeminent historian of packaging. And here's what she said. She said, dear Mark, this is a generalization I'd not heard of before, but I'd imagine that even if it's true, it would vary by age since aluminum foil was available, though quite expensive, decades before Ziplocs, which were also expensive at first. But if it's true, I'm sorry to say I can fathom no reason. This to me is so, one of our listeners' graduate thesis. Like yeah. someone take this. Can I jump in and say I grew up tin, tin foil, not aluminum foil, obviously. And the funny thing, I want to I want to flip this on its head for you guys. Really oh blow God. your mind. Flip it. My grandmother. Cecile Rothhouse, amazing. We love Wife her. of Al Rothhouse, yep. Grandpa Al. She loves Ziplocs. <laughs> and she is like a zip, like she has every size. She And, and it's a new development, right? It's like to the Golden Cities. It's like Jews can live in Florida. They can be on the beach. They can have Ziplocs. But so, and so I think, well, I asked my mom and she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. But she said, but Ziplocs are relatively newer. So it's not like my mother grew up with Ziploc bags. But my take is that because there are kosher implications, that's where this came from. And so, okay. and so the fact that Jews use tinfoil more frequently than Gentiles would be because someone like that's just what you move when you moved here someone told Agreed. you to get aluminum foil that has to be the root and They're I will say that if you're looking for great material to make yourself a hat to stop the aliens from reading and controlling your mind tinfoil still works or the tinfoil menorah you know or it's a classic with aluminum foil never settle for less that kind of rap is just the best to keep your sandwich nice and fresh, stick it in your cooler. What else do we have in the mailbox? Let's the advice see. inbox. I think Steve Barton's writing on. an advice theme for us, by the way. Oh, I need some advice from you. Oh, yeah. Hey, Juzies, which is, by the way, my favorite way yeah. any letter to us has ever First started. First time we've ever been called Juzies. Something came up in my social media feeds today that I needed to get a check on from the indisputable authority of Jewish culture. So after I asked my wife, Hannah, we decided that we both wanted to consult with you on the issue of Goyim appropriating Hebrew biblical names. This came up when I noticed a former coworker, a very, very proud evangelical Christian, someone who wore diamond crucifixes every day, goes to Saddleback Church, home of Rick Warren, and generally praises Jesus whenever it is even remotely appropriate to do so, posted photos of the nursery she is putting together for her baby daughter, who, it became apparent, will be named Hadassah. God bless her. My view is that unless you can spell the name Be'ivrit in Hebrew, you really don't have business taking this name for your daughter. And this, in general, roils me up. One, isn't this blatant cultural slash religious appropriation? Two, not that I would, but would I be justified in broaching this topic with said former coworker if we ever see each other again? You'd have to go to Saddleback Ranch to um, go see her. Saddleback Ranch. Oh, sorry, church. (laughs) I like that you promoted it to a ranch. Or are we as Jews somehow not entitled to this issue that others can complain about cultural misappropriation, but not us? Well, that is a big question. Eager for your thoughts and love to you all. Yours, Jeffrey in Los Angeles. Jeffrey in Los Angeles. Uh, So there's a lot there. Yeah. Cultural appropriation. I actually, I honestly, I feel like I'm not in the baby naming game. I haven't really thought about this much. I did know a Hadassah in high school. She was not Jewish. Um, Really? She was one of like the five non-Jews. Um, I see her on Facebook all the time. So I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I, I, I got I to gotta punt this one. What do you think, Mark? 
First of all, this whole business world cultural is appropriation. Is your name Mark, Leo? <laughs> you know, now it is. I'm so sorry. Go ahead, I'm appropriating this, Go ahead. this conversation. If we really got serious about cultural appropriation, yeah. then anyone, Christianity is a cultural appropriation. <laughs> anyone who's had his penis snipped yeah. is culturally appropriating something Jewish and is in some sort of debt to us. This is really one of the most You're welcome, boys. and vile concepts. Uh, ever to to emerge from our from our you know kind of uh, festering. Uh, so to Jeffrey's culture. question. So to Jeffrey's question, uh, it's actually kind of awesome that they do. Imagine a universe where everyone is like Amos, Jeremiah, <laughs> Nimrod, Nimrod, Dudu, Dudi. That's the thing. You should actually work to find names that are not just old school like biblical testament, but like contemporary Israeli names. When there, are, when there are Dudus and Dudies. <laughs> Walking around. BB's Park Slope. Yeah. That's right. Park Slope. Like, that's when we know we won. Uh, so, I... Um, first of the all, American president. Here, look. Dudu Smith. I have, I have a... Said today. I have a, a two-fold answer. Let me bifurcate here. First of all, I agree with you about cultural appropriation. In fact, um, you know, what we teach our children in Hebrew school is, you know, the, the, the most basic thing you can tell them is we invented ethical monotheism so that people would know. There's, one, right. there's one set of rules, right? You don't get to say, well, I have a different God, therefore we sacrifice babies. There's one God, one set of rules. And, and, you know, he has commandments we should all obey to be ethical humans. And then we said, please, world, go culturally appropriate us. And, and a lot of them did. And the world is, is better for it. So I'm not against that in the least. That said, I have met several non-Jews who have named their daughters Noah, N-O-A. And I think it's- So chic. And I've even met Jews who name their daughters Noah, but don't know the story in the Bible. And first of all, I'm baffled by people who give their kids names and never did the Google search to say, what does this name mean? Like, that's just a little weird. Given all the Googling that we all do, who's the person who says, I'm going to name my child anything? Kevin, Mark, or Shlomo. Like first initial S, last name Butnick, Sputnik, Sputnik in the like, late 80s. Figure Come on, it out, right? Like, I bet, here's one of the things. So I'm actually okay with this evangelical Christian naming their kid Hadassah. Because they know the if, story. If they know the story. If, okay. And I bet they do. I bet they do. Now, that said, I really think it's lame when people have a, think, oh, you know what sounds cool? Noah with no H for a girl. And I'm like, oh, like the daughter of Tzalofahad. And they look at me like, blah, blah, blah. and I think, do the Google search. So I do think that- Tell them a story. Tell us the story of Noah. Yeah. I'm, so we all can be in the clear if we want to name our kids. Well, no, she was, they should freaking Google They it. were the five daughters who who inherited. They were the first women to inherit. Their That's father, right. Tzlofahad, had no sons. And Moshe said, your daughters can inherit. So, you know, it's a beautiful story. It's a feminist story. It's a great story. But for crying out loud, learn the story. Just but show the, some respect and is also, my feeling. if you're going to choose, I agree with that. But if you also are going to choose biblical names, they're funnier ones. Like, Nimrod. why aren't there any Mephibosheths out there? Because Mephibosheth's a pretty freaking funny name. Or just Methuselah. You're or wishing Methuselah. your child a long life, right? Yeah. Go through Torah and just choose some of them their names. So that's what we have to say is just do the work. Do the research. Tzlofahad for crying Tzlofahad, out loud. right? If I have one more Tzlofahad daughter, call me Tzlofahad. Tzlofenheimer. <laughs> 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 can't even do that one. Westchester Hadassah. How wrong can you be? I'm not even Jewish. Stop pestering me. Uh, we have a live show coming up, the JCC of Manhattan, January 24th with Father James Martin and comedian Judy Gold and all of us. Go to jccmanhattan.org and look under Arts and Ideas to buy tickets. 
Finally, you have two days left in the year 2017 to give us your money. Um, we would, we would this is really the most polite robbery act, that's act, ever happened. No. We would really like seriously. It keeps what that thirty five thousand dollars we raised earlier this year keeps the lights on. And if we can raise a little more, uh, and you can deduct it, then Mark would have a fifth child. Oh. Ooh. How about that? How much do we have to raise before By I promise way, a fifth Mark child? Having a fifth child, I yeah. think there might be someone else we'd like to consult who may actually you know. have the child. Smash the patriarchy. It's very 2018 of you. Is what I say. Leo, what do you have for us? Hey, J. Crew. My husband and I have been married for almost a year. And we are expecting our first child in April. The baby was a big surprise. Babies always are. But we are very excited and filled with joy. We wanted to celebrate with our family and friends and immediately thought of having a baby shower. When I brought this up to my mom, she immediately said, Jews don't do baby showers, which I just thought was my mom being superstitious. She began to tell my whole family my baby shower plans, which is when the phone calls started. I got everything from your grandmother will roll over in her grave to you shouldn't even find out the gender because it's bad luck. Eventually, I found out that the reason behind this rationale, apparently people who have baby showers and brag too much about their pregnancy run the risk of getting the evil eye. My question to you is, we really need the gifts a baby shower will bring, but I do not want to have to hear my family complain about this for the rest of my life and the baby's life at all functions. How can we get the baby swag a shower will bring us while respecting the superstitions of my family? Much appreciated, Sarah Toledano. Guys, this is another one. That I don't. I, to me, my take is that having never been through the process, I think it would be nice to have like a nursery full of things to come home to as opposed to just like getting it all delivered after the baby is born. I don't know how that actually works once you have the baby and then need to like wash all the onesies that just arrived because your Amazon registry just like delivers it after you've had the baby. But that's all I'll say. I'll probably change my tune. <laughs> okay. I don't really get it. So without, as of now, you're pro baby shower. No, I'm not um, pro baby shower. I'm just, I, I think it's it's hard in our modern, I'm not pro, I mean, no, I think, first of all, I love a good baby shower. Who doesn't love a good baby shower? So, I just don't understand. I think it, it, it becomes really impractical to, to, to abide by all of these restrictions. So Shira Tiloshkin did some research for us and she said, yeah, this is totally a thing, the Jewish prohibition on baby showers, though the respected authorities um, like Blue Greenberg's great book, How to Run a Traditional Jewish Household, are fine with at least prepping the nursery in advance. This is only minchag. It's custom. It doesn't have to do with Torah, with halakha. Uh, and, you know, if you don't care about the superstition, don't worry about it. She also adds, Shira does, that there's no problem with throwing a shower after the baby is born and once the baby is born and healthy, because then all superstitions cease to have power. Okay. Uh, I will say, having, uh, you know, been, 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 been there, done been that. down this road, um, I think Sid and I are pretty much on the same page. I think she would just say it seems to be, you know, we're not superstitious people by and large. I think she would say you don't ever want to put yourself in a position where you have a room full of stuff and a baby who didn't survive and that there's something to be said for avoiding that. I will add as the somewhat um, more caustic and cynical one in our partnership that, both, first of all, I say this all sorts of love for my Gentile friends. It feels very goyish to me. And it felt very goyish to me even before I was more interested in Judaism. It felt, it feels like materialism meets gender segregated parties meets overinvestment in mommy culture. It just feels, they feel gross to me. And they did when I was like 11. I was like, who would do this, right? I also want to say that there's something about Judaism that by tradition, at milestone moments, we prefer the unadorned and the less frills. Like a Jewish wedding, the actual theological part of it is, you know, it's seven blessings and it can be done in like two minutes. And at funerals, you know, the plain, simple pine box and the shroud and not the big ornate coffin with like lots of velvet, you know, casement mm -hmm. and stuff. 
And I feel like, you know, uh, there's something about you give birth and you have a child. And if you come home and all you have is the car seat and the onesies that someone handed down to you, like that's actually the way it should be. But, but I would say that some so, people don't get any of that. Like I think if you're truly superstitious, you, can, you wouldn't get the crib. You wouldn't get the car seat. You get everything delivered after. So and that I is think, what I'm saying. Is I think what Mark is, is if I may. Okay. So this is like. Like let's have something that's not about a huge party with lots of consumption because also I think that distracts from, because look, that you must, we must all admit it in, for some people that's going to insinuate into the whole experience, but I didn't get all the stuff on my shower registry and how come so-and-so didn't come and so-and-so gave, you know, Tamar a better stroller. And it's like, no. Because here's what we do. No. We, 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 we negotiate, right? Uh, we Jews? Uh, yeah, we, of course. So, so like before I ran my first marathon, oh which my is twenty six point two, baby. Only real pain, uh, you know, twenty six point three. Twenty six point two. Twenty six point two. Felt you know, like twenty six point three. There's a hat that I really wanted, uh, and it said finisher on it, and it was clearly going to be sold out by the time the marathon was done. I was like, fuck, this is the mother of all superstitions, but I have to have this stupid hat. So I bought the hat, and I, I had a, a, a brief talk with you know our Lord and creator and i said okay here's how this is going to work i'm going to put this hat away inside this drawer and we're going to pretend like i never bought the hat and you're going to be cool with that i'm going to finish the marathon and then once i did i'm just going to wear my hat i think we're kind of talking about the same thing here it's like don't do a big thing out of it get a few things that you actually really need or just be a bummer to come home but and I not would, have i would counter with didn't you get like injured in the middle of that first marathon I did, but i finished it Hey, Unorthodox listeners, Noah here. I edit the show, and I'm just hopping in to explain. We recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago, and so we were lucky enough to have with us Jordana Horn-Gordon, who was a guest on an episode that aired back on December 14th. Jordana is a writer and mother of six, and so she weighed in as well on the issue of whether Jews do baby showers. Jordana Horn Gordon, you're still you're, here. Since you're still hey, here from two hi. weeks ago, do you? Do you she have gets any, her mail here do you now. Have a, 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 can you look? Six children. What's the shower Six kids. story? Um, so I'm going to err on the more conservative side. I also am not a superstitious person. Um, but as you find out when you become pregnant, you find out that you're related to a lot of superstitious people, um, <laughs> as, as your listener clearly did. Um, and I really believe in not rocking the boat, except if it's something that is truly meaningful and important to you. This is something where um, the the workarounds have already been established. You, If you talk to um, Bye Bye Baby or Babies Are Us, they know the whole thing about the superstitious Jews. They know Jews. Jews. Oh, they're aware. Oh, they know so Jews. You set up the whole registry and you have it basically where, you know, you're in labor, you push out the kid. You press a button and it is go time. Like that, that <laughs> registry is live. People can, and not only that, but people who um, are insistent or um, psyched about throwing you a shower, you can say, okay, you guys are team A. And when we have this baby and poo, 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 everything's okay. And we're getting ready to leave the hospital. You guys are the ones who are going to mobilize the crew. The bat signal goes out. The bat signal goes out and everything is going to somehow appear and materialize in a, as you said, in a not materialistic um, 
consumption oriented fashion. And because these are the things that you are getting are, in fact, the tools for your new existence, things that you did not really even contemplate before you had children. And then by the time you get to the sixth one, you're really like reusing the pacifiers. You, you really just oh, yeah, don't, yeah. don't care yeah, anymore. So whatever. And finally, Sarah, you don't need the wipe warmer. No, you certainly you do, do not. not well, because really, a child needs to be used to the fact that their butt is going to be cold sometimes. Yeah, you That's don't need life. the wipe warmer. Good luck, Sarah. That um, is life. Good luck. Keep us posted. Send us baby pictures uh, when the time comes. Uh, friends, thank you for all these questions. We will surely do another advice episode. So send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. If you want advice, put advice in the subject line. And of course, we're we're always answering and questions. be careful what you wish for. We're always answering questions on the Facebook page. And be careful what you wish for. Special thanks to our in-studio guest, Jordana Horn-Gordon. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnik. Join our Facebook group. Go to the Tablet Facebook page and then click on Groups. Our show is produced expertly by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Telushkin with help from Julia Frakes. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson. Our music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision by Mayor Soloveitchik who made it to the Trump Hanukkah party. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. We recorded Argo Studios, which does not give unsolicited advice, and we are proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. <laughs>